0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. With me is Aaron Miller. This is the second half of this week's podcast series. Uh, as we explained in our episode from yesterday, from now on the podcast is going to be split into two separate episodes each week with the first being our traditional question of the week format and the second being our news roundup in a slightly different form. This is then the news roundup episode for the the week ending March 24th, and we're mostly going to be tackling news items from this week. Uh, This ties in somewhat to the new site that I launched uh, a couple of months ago called Tech Narratives. We'll be choosing a number of stories that I've already covered there this week, and we'll link to those stories from the website. But we're going to drill down a bit more detail in a handful of those stories today, and that will be the format for this Friday episode going forward. we will be just a discussion about several of these news items uh, again we hope you enjoyed yesterday's episode if you've already listened to that and, and now listening to this we'd love your feedback on this one of the things that we've done in the past at the end of each episode is what we call that weekly pick where we have recommended something that we thought our listeners might enjoy as much as we have this was sort of just an organic recommendation of it could be a tv show it could be a, a physical object of some kind it could be an app or something else Uh, We've recommended a lot of stuff over the past uh, couple of years. We're probably not going to continue with that. And so, unless we hear from you that you would miss it if it went away and you'd like it to come back, we'll probably eliminate that element. But um, let us know if you feel strongly about that. But for now, here's the news roundup. And these are the topics we're going to be covering. First off, we'll cover the backlash by advertisers against YouTube and to some extent Google more broadly over the issue of ads appearing next to undesirable videos. Started in the UK, spread to the US this week. We'll secondly talk about Samsung's sort of pre-announcement of its Bixby virtual assistant that will ship with the Galaxy S8 phone that will be announcing next week. Thirdly, we'll talk about news that broke yesterday evening about Twitter testing a subscription service, a paid subscription service. Seems like it'll be tied to TweetDeck, so we'll talk about that third. And then lastly, there was a slew of Apple news this week, mostly press releases from Apple early in the week about a new iPad, about a new app called Clips and uh, some other bits and pieces, Um, but then also, slightly later in the week, the announcement that Apple's acquiring Workflow, which is a popular automation app for iOS. So that will be the topics that we'll cover today, and we'll spend a few minutes on each of those. So let's kick off with the Google YouTube news. This really, as I say, broke last week in the UK, where, following some investigations by press there, it emerged that ads from popular brands, including the UK government. I'm not sure the UK government is a popular brand, actually, but at any rate, from advertisers and major advertisers at that, had been appearing next to undesirable videos for one of a better catch-all term. Some of these videos were videos promoting terrorism. Some of them were promoting hate speech. Some of them were promoting other um, unsavoury things. And so, advertisers in the UK started to publicly announce that they wouldn't be advertising on YouTube and, in some cases, on any Google platform for the foreseeable future until some of these issues had been resolved. Google issued a brief sort of mea culpa last week in the UK on its European blog. And then this week, they seemed to realize that it was starting to spread, at least the sentiment was starting to spread. And they they released a more detailed response, although still not all that detailed uh, in the US or globally. Uh, But even after that, we then saw a whole bunch of US advertisers, including two of the biggest wireless carriers, two big uh, consumer packaged goods companies today. I think JP Morgan has just announced that they're pulling out. So this continues to snowball for them even after they release that, that sort of bigger, more detailed response. Um, Aaron, what was your take on this whole story this week?
1: Well, we talked before in a question of the week about uh, the duopoly in online advertising between Google and Facebook. And the reality is, is, Facebook's share of that uh, online advertising is just in its own property, whereas Google has a pretty far reach across the entire web. Uh, when you have th- that that what I'll just call monopoly power on Google's part, you know, one of the probably one of the few really powerful avenues that customers have is coordination, and that's kind of what's happening. Although informally, like what's happened is, there's been enough. There's there's been enough. Uh, Distrust built up over time now, that uh, these signals that are being sent out in the media by these various advertisers are getting picked up by other advertisers and gaining momentum. And this is, you know, if you're if you're if you're a customer of a monopolist, this is one of the one of the ways, one of the most powerful ways that you can have influence is to try to sort of band together in your buying strat in your buying behavior, and so. I, I think it's smart, and there's a lot of money in the brands that are represented. Um, there's a lot of advertising money there, and so it, it, it is going to be something that Google should be very concerned about. You know, the, the, the black box of programmatic ad buying that we also talked about during that question of the week um, inevitably is going to lead to uh, uh, advertising from reputable brands showing up on unreputable web properties or you know tied to youtube videos and it's it, we talked about this idea it needs some an easy human touch it can't just be all you know purely programmatic because there are always going to be algorithms connecting brands with with videos that they're not happy with or with web properties they're not happy with
0: yeah absolutely and then the problem with those algorithms is that they largely match advertising with audiences and it's quite possible for a really unpleasant website to have just the audience that you want in terms of sort of standard demographic measures so it might be you know age and gender for example where there might be lots of young white males visiting you know a white supremacist website but if your algorithm only tells you to target certain demographics and it wants young white males for a particular ad then you might end up advertising on, you know, Breitbart or something much worse. So that's the problem with these algorithms is they're mostly audience-based. They're not really about the content of the site itself. And that's the challenge here is that programmatic advertising in particular just uh, is basically blind to the content of the site or the content of a video that it's attached to. And mostly goes by demographics and other sort of profiling data. you know, this really feels like it's brought to the head some of the issues that, as you say, we talked about a couple of weeks ago in our uh, question of the week about the state of online advertising. But this, this really has sort of snowballed this week. And one of the reasons it's doing that, I think, is no advertiser wants to be the one that's okay with its ads appearing next to undesirable videos when everybody else isn't. So the more this carries on, the more brands are going to say, you know what, we can't be the ones that seem to be okay with this. We have to object in the same way as everybody else is. And the problem is, you know, Google's issued an initial response and it doesn't seem to have been enough. And I wrote in a Tech Opinions piece this week about um, the three scenarios that could play out here. And, and none of, none of them is that great. The third one's certainly the most favorable for Google. But the first is that Google really tightens up policies around where ads can appear, or at least the ways in which big brands can decide where their ads appear. And that's bad for creators because it means the long tail of content ends up Uh, going without monetization, which means it basically destroys the business model for those creators. On the other hand, you uh, allow ads to continue largely appearing where they are, perhaps improve the algorithms a little bit, um, but then advertisers still aren't happy. And then the third scenario is kind of what Google must be hoping for and and certainly was aiming at with its response this week, which so far doesn't seem to have been successful, which is tightening things up just enough that you give advertisers a way to say, okay, we've made our complaints known. We know it's never going to be perfect. We'll go back to advertising. And You know, the reason for believing that might eventually work is that nobody wants to abandon Google or YouTube. You know, these are both unique properties. Google is unique in its ability through search to target ads with timeliness and relevance, which is a unique combination that advertisers are looking for. There's really nowhere else that you can get that at the same scale. And then YouTube is a unique property in that it's video advertising But the audience is very young and it's an audience that's largely abandoned traditional linear TV. And so, again, it's a unique property in that sense. So these big advertisers spend billions and billions a year on advertising, including lots of online advertising don't really want to abandon Google or YouTube long-term. So they want to extract some concessions. They want a bit more control. They probably want a bit more visibility and analytics around where their ads are appearing and so on. And they'll probably just use this as a way to get all of that and then slowly start to come back. And so that's certainly the scenario Google will be hoping for. The big question is just how long it takes to get to that point because the initial concessions, as I say, from this week don't seem to have been enough yet. It could be that as it fleshes that out, that that will improve. But for now, really tricky situation for Google Um, There are other advertisers that will fill those gaps uh, that are left by those. It's not like there will be lots of videos that go without advertising. You know, the way that the ad slots get filled is programmatic or at least automated. And so they will all get filled. The prices may come down a little bit with less competition for them. But uh, this could have certainly a short term impact. But the programmatic thing more broadly is a much bigger worry, I think, for Google in the longer term.
1: Yeah. And being realistic, there are always going to be unscrupulous advertisers that frankly don't care. So yeah i mean people that are advertising products that are fleecing their customers and mm-hmm. they're happy to get it out there as much as possible right the the, the prices will come down but there'll always be advertising revenue there especially for the i mean because not all of these you know, unsavory websites like the white supremacists or, or, you know, other types of content like that. Not all of it is ideologically driven. Some of it is financially driven, right. like, the you know, the fake news websites. Mm-hmm. And I think the sad truth is, is they're always going to have people willing to pay for advertising on their sites. It's just the, the quality of the products being advertised will change pretty dramatically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Uh, one other thing I'll point you guys to is um, I did the first of what I'm hoping will be a series of weekly videos um, for Tech Narratives. This one was about one particular narrative on uh, the site, which is called Advertising Sustainability. And so I talked through that narrative in some details, about 15 minutes long. So if you go to the Tech Narratives website and go to the Advertising Sustainability Narrative, you'll see that YouTube video embedded there. This is something I'm going to do each week. I'm going to f- focus on a, a narrative on the site and use these videos as a way to dive a little deeper and kind of highlight a particular narrative. So we'll, we'll point to that from the website as well, from the podcast website. Our second news roundup topic is Samsung's pre-announcement of its Bixby. I'm going to call it an assistant because we really don't have a better word for it, but the way Samsung describes this is actually a bit different from an assistant. But this is the assistant that will ship with the Galaxy S8 phone that's due to be launched next week in New York. And they pre-announced it, which was kind of an interesting decision to make. You know, I had thought, given the acquisition of Viv uh, last year, which was this uh, third-party virtual assistant that got a lot of attention from some impressive demos, uh, Samsung acquired that. And so the expectation was this would be a big part of the phone, and you would assume it would be kind of the headline feature for the announcement of the new phone. And then they went ahead and pre-announced it this week. And... A couple of reasons I think they might have done that. One is this doesn't actually incorporate any of the VIV technology. So Bixby is entirely internally developed by Samsung, and the VIV stuff is all still to come. The other thing is it's quite narrowly defined. So this isn't supposed to be a broad-based virtual assistant system-wide and so on. This is a very sort of app-centric assistant function. And it's basically another layer of user interface. That's kind of the way Samsung talks about it. So it's basically a way to interact with all the apps you would normally interact with using touch with your voice instead um and so it's not for checking the weather and all that kind of stuff it's really for just when you're in an app this is a new way to interact with the app that means of course that every app has to build in support for it and of course for the samsung apps that'll be there from the get-go i'm guessing they'll have a couple of other apps they've worked with just to show how it works with third-party applications but it will obviously take some time for that to come for the vast majority aaron what was your take on this news from samsung
1: I think this approach to, um, voice control as a, as a voice is a, I mean, the voice is a new layer of user interaction has been growing a lot ever since Siri start, you know, came out, but I think this idea of voice being able to control every action of an app. Um, the truth is, people have been complaining for years that Siri doesn't integrate very well with apps, and even with the changes made last year, that's still, I think, a valid argument. There's a lot that Siri doesn't yet do that developers can take advantage of. I think it's going to be really interesting to see, as just a natural experiment, how well this Bixby, um, uh, yeah, like you said, an assistant does. It, it, you know, How useful is it to be able to give a voice command to every feature that's baked into an app? I don't think we really know. We can, maybe, stop to imagine it with some apps, but not others. But in the end, I think the best thing is to just put it out into the wild and see how people use it, see how developers use it, and so it'll be an interesting test of the of the concept that really people kind of have been asking for for a long time, um, and yet it's never shown up. At least not in the way it sounds like Bixby is going to work.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, th- I think. The way that Bixby works is probably something of a double-edged sword. I think on the one hand, the narrower approach is a good solution to a problem that a lot of assistants have, which is over-promising and under-delivering and, and leaving users with the problem of figuring out what can this and can't it do. Uh, that's one of the big challenges always is not knowing what's going to work and what isn't, and you kind of have to try try things and see if they work or not. And as a result, you end up feeling stupid a lot of the time. You end up feeling frustrated and you kind of give up on them. I think one thing that Bixby at least promises to do well is to say, if you can do it with touch in an app, you can now do it with voice. So it tells you exactly what's possible and it tells you also the parameters within which it will work, which is certain apps support it, certain don't. we have to see kind of how that's visually flagged to the user, but it is at least a solution to that problem of, as I say, over-promising and under-delivering and leaving users with some confusion about what is and isn't possible. So I think that's a good thing. I think, in some ways, that, that narrowing of the focus is, is quite clever and I think might, might work out well. I think the other side of that sword, though, is that when it's not a system-wide assistant and system-wide assistants are available, so it's likely that Google Assistant will ship with the S8 next week when it's announced. When those are available, Bixby's gonna look less functional, less capable uh, by comparison. And the other side is that obviously until third-party apps integrated, it's entirely useless in those third-party apps. And Samsung has a decent amount of market share, obviously, it may be that app makers decide to build in support for it, but of course this isn't going to be an Android-level feature, and developers typically develop for Android and for iOS and not for Samsung specifically. Samsung has had some previous features like its Edge on some of its phones uh, where apps have been able to support that, and some developers have supported it, but certainly not all have. And so there is this question about whether developers will support this in large enough numbers to make it worthwhile, because if they don't, it'll be like a feature like 3D Touch on the iPhone or something else like that, where it's great where it exists, but it's frustrating that it doesn't exist everywhere. And 3D Touch has actually come a long way. A lot of apps do integrate it now, but there was that question early on, and certainly when it first launched, it was frustrating to go from one app to another and have this very useful feature in some places and then not in other places. So I do worry that if third-party developers don't embrace it, um, partly because users aren't using it because they're using, say, the Google Assistant instead, then that will kind of hamstring it and it won't be that successful. Yeah, there
1: there is one interesting area where Bixby could make a huge difference for a narrow set of users and that's for those that are vision impaired. And I think it's an interesting idea. They obviously still have the discoverability problem. You know, David Pogue last week had a really fascinating article where he interviewed uh, an iPhone user that uh, essentially was taking full advantage of the universal access features built into iOS and it was really fascinating to learn how somebody that's vision impaired can use an iPhone and um, and uh, you know something and and the reality is is Android is I think pretty far behind iOS when it comes to those features and and how common they are across apps and so forth because developers you know it really have to make an effort to take full advantage of them um it'll be interesting to see if there's a a side benefit that plays out here that way that uh, it enriches android in a place where it can improve
0: yeah it's interesting i mean again it's not Android per se, right? It's in a level above it, and Android hasn't had the same sort of accessibility support that iOS has. But you know, I used to have a, a colleague when I worked for a previous firm who was highly visually impaired. So he had good, he had okay peripheral vision, but he was basically legally blind. And so he had this huge computer setup. I remember when he first joined the company? That this huge computer setup with this massive sort of magnifying thing and various other things, so that he could see what was on his screen, and then he had dictation and voice software and so on. Um, I've seen him again more recently. I don't work with him anymore, but I've seen him at a couple of events, and he now uses an iPhone for so much of that stuff, and it's amazing how he's able to use it. He's able to walk down the street and use his phone the whole time because it's all auditory, so he just has headphones plugged in, and then he's moving his thumb around the screen where the screen is off, and this is something that David Pogue talks about. It's incredibly efficient with his iPhone even while walking down the street because he doesn't need his eyes to see it. So, yeah, the iPhone's been great at that. I think Bixby certainly has potential for accessibility use cases. I think this could, this could be a good advance on the, on the Android side, even if it's within a narrow slice of Android around accessibility. Okay. Well, let's move on to the third News Roundup topic, which is the uh, reporting last night that Twitter is working on a paid subscription service. It looks like this will be tied to TweetDeck in some ways. It looks like it might be $20 per month, so it's a fairly expensive subscription relative to some other ones that you might see out there for video or music and so on. It's uh, it's a strange mix of premium features for businesses and so on, so lots of analytics and being able to track lots of different trends and that kind of thing, and then some other stuff that feels very much like it's aimed at newbie users, so helping you see the most important tweets from people you follow and things like that. So it feels like a strange mix. When I saw the headlines about this last night, I thought this actually could be really cool. You know, if it gets rid of the ads, if it adds some nice premium features for power users, then that sounds really interesting. And then as soon as I saw it was tied to TweetDeck, I got a lot less excited because TweetDeck's always been something of a mess. Like for example, I'm a Mac user and on Mac, the app hasn't really been updated since about 2015. I think it currently has about three stars, which is probably fairly generous. I think it's probably because nobody's used it recently. Um, it's, it's kind of been a mess. It crashes a lot. The only time I ever see a lot of people mentioning it on Twitter itself is when it's crashing. Um, and it's for a certain type of power user, and it is mostly for those people using Twitter sort of professionally in a sort of social media manager role or something like that, rather than for people who are using it as just power users, which I think is a slightly different thing. And so if it's tied to that, I'm a lot less excited about it. It feels much more like some of the third-party uh, paid Twitter services that brands use to manage their Twitter presence and so on. So it's an interesting idea. It's been a long time coming. Obviously, it's interesting that it's taken 11 years for Twitter to get to this point. Uh, and as I say, I'm a bit disappointed with the specific focus of it. But
1: Aaron, I know what your
0: take on this was.
1: Well, this is absolutely grading on a curve, but I'm just glad to see signs of life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to see Twitter, you know, sort of A, doing some validation I think, you know, checking in with customers and testing out ideas in the market, I I, I think, is a useful strategy for most companies. You know, Apple doesn't do it, for example, because they're famously secretive. Google, on the other hand, does stuff like this all the time. I I, I think it's nice to see Twitter kind of exploring a little bit. I think they recognize that they don't have a ton to lose. It's not like power users, if they don't ship the features that power users want, it's not like they're going to leave Twitter because they're still using it the way it exists in its current form. Um, You know, whether or not there's much of a market there for power users, I'm not sure. I can't imagine, you know, a company's financial welfare, um, a company like Twitter anyway, sort of changing its its fortunes by all of a sudden figuring out how to charge power users. Um, But I do think it could be, you know, a worthwhile effort in terms of the, you know, the financial return that would come from serving power users in a way that they'd be willing to pay for. It's not. This isn't the sort of thing that will rescue the company, obviously, because power users. I mean, if they if they want to grow, um, these features would have to turn regular users into power users, and I'm not sure that Twitter has a use case for that yet.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I think there's a big question too about how many power users there are, in the narrower way that Twitter seems to be defining it in the context of this new service. You know, I think there are lots of power users, as I would define it, on Twitter. And I've talked, I've written blog posts in the past about the relationship between power users and the rest of the base. And the power user group is definitely smaller, but they basically produce almost all the content that the rest of the base consumes. And so you really want to feed that group. And, you know, some people have even made an argument that Twitter should be paying those power users rather than charging them. Um, but you know, I think, as I say, power users of the kind that I am, I think you know, people who are on Twitter all day long who use it to, to stay connected with the world and so on, who really rely on it day in, day out, I think it would be willing to pay for certain premium features and potentially for removing ads, as I say, and maybe willing to pay quite a bit for it. But I think the way that they're defining power users, which is more the sort of professional social media manager type role, that's a much smaller number. So you know, even if you're 100,000 of those, you know, working for major brands around the world. You At know, $20 a month, that's not a big revenue stream at all in the, in the overall context of Twitter's revenue today. Um, you know, If they define it much more broadly and made it more appealing to that much broader base, even if it was $10 a month, you get several million people signing up, then obviously the revenue equation changes significantly. So I think it's great that they're testing this finally. As you say, good to see a sign that they're interested in making some changes and so on. I think this particular idea needs some more work, and I hope it
1: gets some more work before it actually gets released to the public. Well, and a cynic would say this is just them trying to figure out what to do with TweetDeck. Yeah, um, like how they can sort of take advantage of TweetDeck as a as you know an app for accessing mm-hmm. their service, and somebody in the somebody in the building may have just said, "Hey, what if we just customize it for power users and we charge them for it?" Right. Yeah. Uh, which 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 isn't the sort of innovation that's it's it's. it's May, it might get to the same outcome, but it's not driven by the same thinking. And right. that's the part that would be, stre- be distressing if, if that's the way it happened. Yeah. If it's just sort of like, what do we do with this tweet deck thing? And then somebody said, hey, what if we do this with it? It's not thinking in a way like, hey, we have some fundamental problems here we need to fix. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, it's here, we've got an app, we need to figure out what we're going to do with it. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, well, let's move on to our last news roundup topic, which is a variety of Apple news that came out this week. And as I said at the beginning, several of these were made by press release earlier in the week after lots of rumors and speculation about new iPads. We really just got one new iPad and dropped the iPad Air branding in favor of just the original iPad branding. It's now the 9.7-inch iPad. It sits in between the Mini and the uh, Pros in some ways, and yet it's cheaper than the Mini at this point because the Mini starts at a higher storage tier. And so the iPad Mini 4 is no longer the cheapest iPad in the lineup. It's the new iPad that's the cheapest at 329 If you haven't listened to it yet, our question of the week this week talked about Apple pricing strategy, and we did talk about the iPad pricing specifically. So we won't dive into detail on that. That was, I think, to most people probably the big news. I think the other interesting news was Apple announced a Clips app. And this is a sort of... I've seen it reported as being sort of a Snapchat or Instagram clone. It's really not. What it is, it, it, it takes a sort of filter element of those apps but without all the social side of it and then applies it to both photos and video and sort of rolls in some iMovie as well because this is really about taking a set of photos and video automatically adding some captions and other elements and then bundling it up into a sort of uh, edited together video. So it brings together these interesting elements but there's no social component. So I think the expectation is you'll share this on your social network of choice after you're done putting it together. It looks interesting, very hard to really engage or um, evaluate it until it's actually released to the public and I know some Apple bloggers have had early access to it but I haven't and neither of us have and so we'll have to wait until it's actually released to really evaluate it in detail there are a couple of other minor announcements there's a, uh, a product red iPhone uh, which looks amazing and um, if you're comfortable with very bright colors on your devices, you probably love that, and um, you know, that looks interesting, and obviously raising money for a good cause as well. Uh, and then there were some new watch bands and various other bits and pieces as well. Oh, and the iPhone SE uh, got a storage bump as well. So those were announcements made earlier in the week, and then uh, a couple of days later, there was an announcement that Apple was acquiring Workflow, which is a popular automation app for iOS I say popular, and we should talk about that in a bit more detail. It's all relative here, but uh, at any rate, interesting buy there. So, Aaron, we heard a little bit from you about the iPad on the Question of the Week episode, but any other thoughts about these announcements?
1: Um, I think if I have to pick the one that I'm most excited about, I would say it's Workflow. And this is is coming from somebody who hasn't actually used Workflow on iOS yet. But the reason I'm excited is because I I think the inevitable outcome of this is heading toward... um, Uh, more automation probably you know leveraged around siri um but just you know deep linking has been around for a while within apps and i think this is going to create um more useful resources to take advantage of deep linking it's going to i think it's going to encourage app developers to be more serious about building deep linking into their apps um and i'm hoping that this translates into uh, more robust iPad features so that it, it, it comes closer to um, you know the power if not, if not the exact management method or approach of, of a laptop with file management and all that, at the very least coming closer to the power of it. Over at Mac Stories, uh, uh, Federico Vitici has been doing um, articles cause he's an exclusive iPad user for everything. And he has this amazing series of articles on how to have the iPad be your only computer. And he is a, he is a, a diehard workflow user. And in fact, he's really only made this, this, this strategy of his to rely only on the iPad. He's only made it work, I think because of workflow and a few other things he's found. So I'm excited about the idea of the iPad becoming a lot more powerful as a primary computing device as a result of uh, Apple buying workflow.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing that's worth talking about in the context of workflow is that a couple of months ago, Sal Sagoyan, who had owned automation at Apple, and this is mostly the automator app within Mac OS, he left. Um and, and he was it sounds like he was basically let go by Apple after being there for many years and being the champion of these technologies there. And if you've never used automator on the Mac, it's very powerful and there are certain, you know, power users to reuse a term that we used earlier in a slightly even narrower context there are certain power users who live and die by it and people like John Gruber swear by it and so on. I've done one or two things through Automator over the years. I've never found it all that compelling. And big reason is it's it's really not all that fun to use. It uses a lot of words rather than images. And so you really need to basically find some instructions somewhere online to figure out how to even start to do something useful with it. For people who use it, it's enormously important. And so there was a lot of disappointment when Sal going left. Um, On the other hand, this Workflow app is, you know, and I said it was a very popular automation app. Within the context of automation, it's very popular, and and this is still a niche thing. You know, very few people, I suspect, use anything like Workflow on any platform. But what Workflow does very differently is it's highly visual, so it's mostly about little buttons and creating buttons that allow you to do certain things, and the way that you build flows within Workflow is very clever, sort of adding in different elements, and it's very, as I say, very visual. It uses a lot of icons and so on that's very intuitive. So compared to Automator on the Mac, it's a much more user-friendly, mainstream-style uh, approach to automation. That's not to say it's actually mainstream. As I say, it's still a pretty niche proposition. But you know, to the extent this gets built back into iPad and iPhone, as an integrated thing, much like Siri did a few years ago. I think that's really interesting and, and it could go in lots of interesting directions. And I think we could easily see something similar show up on the Mac as well, so that you get a more visual approach to automation. Whether or not that means automator in its current form goes away, whether it's a layer on top of that or an alternative to it, we'll have to see. It'll take a year or so, I would guess, before we really see all the fruits of this coming out, we might see some little hints of it at WWDC this week. Maybe it'll even go, uh, this week, this year, I mean, in June. Um, I'm guessing it'll take longer than that, really, to to get properly integrated. But uh, lots of interesting potential there, certainly. Any thoughts about... Sorry, carry on.
1: Well, just one other quick thing about workflow. I think what would be really cool is if it became a way for apps to work together that developers offer to other app developers. Mm. So the idea being that that a developer could build in workflows that other developers could hook into. So apps could be more interoperable without the user having to... To do anything in mm-hmm. setting up or automating anything.
0: Yeah, so. yeah, no, interesting way to deepen that too. Um, any thoughts about the Clips app? I mean, I, I kind of mentioned up front that I think it's being misrepresented by some of the reporting. Yeah, I think my main take was, yes, it's, it's interesting. It kind of fits well with Apple's sort of creativity focus and all the rest of it, and iMovie and Final Cut and everything else that's done in video editing in the past it just—it doesn't feel like it's going to capture the attention of the sort of Snapchat generation. It feels like it's going to be more the rest of us that don't spend a lot of time in those apps and maybe post to what I described as the sort of slower social network, so Facebook as opposed yeah. to, say, Snapchat and Instagram and so on.
1: I, I think it could, only because Snapchat users are always sort of taking full advantage of the lenses and other features built in. Mm-hmm. And I think if if somebody posted a Snap that had that did something that clips did but snapchat can't do everybody's gonna say hey how did you do that and then a snapchat user is gonna say well i use this clips app on the iphone to do it and then somebody's gonna say i need to get an iphone Hmm. right i mean that's like that's how i picture this Yeah. the argument for this clips app playing out is is the clips app hopefully if they've done it right we'll be able to do things that none of the other social media platforms can do Hmm. like the dictation thing is a pretty cool idea yeah and so of course the huge problem with this is with how fast features get added right you know and and how much copying there is going on for for the clips app to remain useful it's always got to stay ahead and i have a really hard time picturing apple keeping up with that yeah <laughs> okay. yeah i mean snapchat I, and instagram I, I, are both innovated so quickly over the past year in particular that's right and i mean it's really hard to imagine apple staying a step ahead of them and constantly pushing out updates to to this to the clips app but maybe i'm wrong maybe they have a team mm. set up and ready and committed to make that happen but but it's it, it it's easy to imagine Clips being ahead of the game because they added a couple cool ideas. And then six months later, nobody's using it anymore because Snap mm. and Instagram have integrated all that stuff already.
0: Right, right. It's, yeah. a, it's
1: a push into augmented reality, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, and maybe Apple does have a whole bunch of great stuff on deck ready to start baking in. Right. But, uh, you know, t- I don't know, I have a hard time picturing Apple being faster than Snap or Instagram. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I
0: agree, just just because of the way they push out, updates to their own apps tends to be as part of an OS upgrade, which they only do right. a few times a year. So, right. All right, well, I think we'll wrap there in the interest of time. But uh, thank you for being with us. This is a sort of shorter version. As I say, this is now one of two separate episodes that we'll do each week with the question of the week and then the news roundup. So this concludes the news roundup for this week. As I said, we're going to drop the weekly pick feature unless we hear from our listeners that it's something that you enjoy and want us to bring back, in which case we will. Um, but we'll include links on the podcast website to... Uh, tech narrative stories on each of the news stories that we've talked about today, as well as a couple of other things that we've mentioned. Uh, Specifically, I think a tech opinions piece that I mentioned on uh, the Google YouTube thing, and also the piece that Aaron mentioned about David Pogue's uh, thing on accessibility in the iPhone. So we'll link to those and various other things. As always, we welcome your feedback. We're just in the first week of this new format, so still trying things out. We'll probably play around with length and so on a little bit with this episode in particular. So give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you are enjoying it, please leave us a review or or a rating or both on iTunes or in the other podcast apps that you happen to use. So
1: thanks again for being with us. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Bye-bye.